From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The congressional district where the Aurora Theater shooting happened and the STEM school attack is represented by Democrat Jason Crow, who's made gun violence prevention a priority. There isn't a week that goes by when I'm out in the community in Colorado where a parent, a teacher, a student doesn't come up to me in tears saying they think about uh, this when they go to school. More of our year-end interviews with the delegation. We'll talk impeachment and the war in Afghanistan. Crow served there. Later, the musician behind Walking in Memphis, Mark Cohn's new record, feeds his love of gospel. Well, John said the city was four square wide. I was a Jewish kid growing up in the suburbs of Cleveland, but somehow gospel music made its way through to my brainwaves. Cohn was almost killed in Denver years ago, but it has never soured him on the city. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's that in-between time. Christmas has passed. New Year's is next. It's an in-between time for Congress as well. The House has impeached President Trump, but it's unclear how things will proceed in the Senate. In this liminal moment, we're going to spend some time now with Congressman Jason Crow, Democratic freshman from Aurora. At first, he was lukewarm on impeachment, fearing it would distract from the issues he ran on. He was also lukewarm on Nancy Pelosi leading the House. Congressman, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Ryan. Good to be back with you. The Washington Post recently ran a story on the run-up to impeachment, and it said that you were one of seven freshmen, all military veterans, by the way, who showed Pelosi that Democrats had reached a tipping point. And she apparently gives you a great deal of credit in this regard. I find it all fascinating, given that you weren't initially a supporter of her leadership in the House. Will you tell me about the evolution of your relationship with Pelosi, perhaps your uh, sense of her? Sure. So, you know, I I made a a promise back on the campaign trail that I was going to push for a a new generation of leadership in Congress. And, you know, I continue to do that in a variety of ways. But this was never about Speaker Pelosi. You know, uh, she has a long history of fighting for, uh, you know, various things that are important values that we share. And this has been a tough year. She has uh, managed a very tough legislative calendar. Uh, We have had uh, some very important wins on gun violence, on campaign finance reform, on health care. You know, given the challenges that we have faced this year, uh, I think she has done a, a nice job of managing things in the House. Is it fair to say this was never about Speaker Pelosi? In other words, you, you wanted to see new blood in that chair, didn't you? Well, you know, I, I didn't I didn't know uh, Speaker Pelosi before this. You know, I had actually never met her. You know, I, this was not a personal thing. This was about uh, what I campaigned largely on and trying to bring a new blood and a new culture to Washington. You know, so much of the challenges we face uh, have to do, uh, I think, with the culture of this town. We're not getting big things done on so many uh, important fronts. And, you know, one of the great things about my class, uh, the first year folks, Republicans and Democrats, is, you know, we're largely not career politicians. When I hear you say we're not career politicians, do you think that you'd set a term limit on yourself never to become one or that it's just helpful you're not one now? 
Well, the most important term limits are the ones that are set by the voters. But, you know, there's just a, a different mentality, a different mindset, right? And, and I have a lot of good friends and, and colleagues who, you know, have been working in politics and doing really wonderful work uh, for decades. But there is a, a, a kind of a nice uh, change in mindset having different folks from different backgrounds. And one of the great things that I love about this class is this the diversity of this class. I wonder if you've resigned yourself to the idea that with a Senate trial looming and the 2020 race, that you and Congress won't get to meaningfully address the sorts of kitchen table issues you were afraid would get lost in the shuffle. I don't think that's true. I mean, look at what's happened over the last 11 months. You know, we have sent uh, over 275 bipartisan bills to the Senate, you know, from gun violence to climate change to health care to prescription drugs to immigration. You know, I serve in the Small Business Committee. Uh, you know, you don't hear about it on the front pages of the Washington Post or New York Times or on Fox News or CNN, but we're actually one of the more productive committees in Congress. You know, we have passed over 30 bills this year, and we've done it unanimously. So that's every Democrat and every Republican on the committee working hard to find agreement. And I think it's really important to tell that story. You're often delivering, though, to a Senate that doesn't take these bills up. Well, in the case of the Small Business Committee, they have taken many of them up. You know, we, we have gotten things uh, through the Senate and signed into law by the president. But, yeah, the Senate remains a real challenge. You know, when we have things that are overwhelmingly supported by the American people, and I'll use H.R. 8, which is the Universal Background Checks Bill. This is something that Coloradans overwhelmingly support. You know, over 90 percent of Americans support, you know, universal background checks. And uh, it would save lives. And the fact that it can't make it through the Senate is a real problem. And it's something that we already did in Colorado. You know, after the Aurora Theater shooting, people demanded a response. And two amazing things have happened in that time. Number one, no law-abiding citizens have lost their firearms. Uh, But number two is over 2,000 people who lawfully should not have firearms have been prevented from obtaining them. How much is your view on guns, do you think, connected to your time in the military? Well, you know, my my view on guns, I think, is a reflection of my entire life. You know, I grew up a hunter. You know, starting when I was a young teenager, I I hunted deer and duck and rabbit. I'm a a gun owner now. Uh, I was an Army Ranger. I, I served over 100 combat missions in Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, I've used these weapons of war at war. I've had them used against me. I know what they're capable of. And I know that they don't belong in our schools, our mosques, our churches, our synagogues. You know, I'm somebody that respects the culture and heritage of responsible firearm ownership in our country. But I'm also somebody that, when I served in the military, understood that citizenship has rights and privileges, but citizenship also has duties and responsibilities. And I don't think we talk enough about that. You know, we have duties and responsibilities to the country. And, and one of those is to make sure that our citizens can live without fear uh, and pursue their life. And we're at a point in our country where we're not fulfilling that duty because too many young men and women are dying on our streets and in our schools. Too many are, are committing suicide using firearms. And it has to stop. You know, in the run-up to the 2020 presidential election, we've seen at least two Democratic candidates... Beto O'Rourke, who's not in the race anymore, and uh, Michael Bloomberg, come to Colorado and use shootings like the one at the Aurora Theater and at Columbine as a kind of backdrop for their gun control platforms. Does it bother you at all that Colorado and specifically your district have become the kind of go-to spot for telling the tale of gun violence? 
Well, what bothers me, Ryan, is that we've had so many mass shootings that people have to come to Colorado and talk about Aurora, talk about Columbine, talk about Arapahoe High School, talk about STEM High School. The fact that we have to talk about this and that the community that I represent has had so many instances and has lost so many young lives is what bothers me. And I'm not going to stop until we fix it. And there isn't a week that goes by when I'm out in the community in Colorado where a parent, a teacher, a student doesn't come up to me in tears saying that they think about uh, this when they go to school. The parents think about whether or not their kids are going to come home when they drop them off for school in the morning. That's what's wrong here. And, you know, we need leadership and we need accountability to fix it. I'd like to dig a little bit more into your history as a veteran, uh, specifically as it relates to Afghanistan, the U.S.'s longest war. The Washington Post alleges in a story that U.S. officials misled the public for years about the success of the war in Afghanistan, despite evidence that it was unwinnable. You did two tours there. I wonder if you've read that piece and what your reaction is to it. Yeah, I have read the piece. Sadly, it doesn't come as a great surprise to me. And that's why I've been talking about this for so long. I mean, you don't win a war for 18 years. You know, if every year of a war after trillions of dollars, thousands of young lives lost, tens of thousands wounded, um, this has not been going well for a very long time. Uh, And I've been talking about it. I've been trying to draw attention to it. I'm a member of the Armed Services Committee. Uh, A lot of the time I spend on the Armed Services Committee is on accountability hearings, asking the hard questions for our generals. I actually led a congressional delegation to Afghanistan, members of the Armed Services Intelligence and Foreign Affairs Committee, the first week of October, where we pressed our commanders very hard. It is time for some real discussion and accountability about, you know, why we are there, what our national interests are, and what the path forward is. And unfortunately, we're at the place where there are no good options anymore. And that is the, that is the, the, the reality here. We have to decide you know, how we address uh, just a, a series of really bad options. A series of really bad options. But withdrawing entirely from Afghanistan, is that one of them? Certainly, it, it's an option, and it's been discussed. I, I don't agree that a complete withdrawal is in our, our national interest. I mean, there are very real terrorism and national security concerns. Uh, And I personally think that we have to have some counterterrorism force. You know, I know that the threat is real. I mean, I receive these classified briefings pretty regularly. Uh, There's a lot of people who want to do great harm and have the capability to do that throughout the world and in that region. And we have to make sure that we are keeping our country and and our people safe. That said, uh, we can't continue to spend $28 billion a year, which is roughly what we're spending there, uh, and have you know, 12,000, 13,000 U.S. troops on the ground. Again, none of these are, are great options given the other challenges we face. I would much rather uh, be spending that money at home, rebuilding our roads and bridges, our schools, investing in uh, career technical education, higher education. I mean, all of these have an opportunity cost to them, uh, and we have some really hard decisions to make in the, coming up in the near future. I wonder if we might circle back to impeachment. You know, millions of dollars are being spent by Republicans targeting Democrats in what are considered vulnerable districts uh, with regards to impeachment. How did you weigh one against the other? You know, deciding that impeachment was a must, but realizing that it might make Democrats vulnerable and it might make you vulnerable in some future campaign. You know, Ryan, I I actually separated politics completely from this decision. When these 
Ukraine allegations came out months ago, it just went so much to the core of who I am and what, what I, uh, I am about and my service to the country. Uh, it went to our national security. It went to issues of abuse of power. Uh, you know, we have over 60,000 troops in Europe. Um, these are, you know, the sons and daughters of people that I represent. And the idea that, you know, the president would use national security funds, foreign assistance funds uh, for an ally fighting an actual war, a shooting war right now uh, against Russian aggression, uh, where, our, you know, our young men and women are, are standing by to assist if this blows up into a larger issue, that he would use that for personal gain um, was just so shocking to me that I just said, you know, listen, I'm going to look at this in a, in a neutral way. I'm going to look at it, try to find the facts and the evidence, and I'm just not going to think about the politics of it. And I think that's what the people that I represent deserve. I'd like to ask you about another veteran in Congress. That's Tulsi Gabbard, who's also running for president. It's interesting. She was the only Democrat, she's the only representative to vote present on the impeachment. And uh, she says, I could not in good conscience vote for impeachment because removal of a sitting president must not be the culmination of a partisan process fueled by tribal animosities that have so gravely divided our country. Could I get you to reflect on that assessment of the House process? Well, I I, I disagree that the inquiry was fueled by tribal animosities. The inquiry was fueled by the actions of the president that compelled us to act and respond to that under our our constitutional obligation and our oath. What I, I do think is happening is there are real divisions in our country and our community right now. That is real, and it, and, it, and it bothers me. You know, everywhere I go, people are, are getting entrenched in their positions. We're becoming a very tribal. You know, democracy requires us to try to figure out how to work together. You know, we are a deliberative system where uh, the system only works if people are willing to come to the table and find some agreement. You know, and, and, and one of the things I, I tell people around here is, you know, if, if you want to get 100% of what you want, then everybody gets 100% of nothing. Congressman, thanks for your time. Thanks, Ryan. Democratic Congressman Jason Crow of Aurora, the latest in our series of year-end conversations with the congressional delegation. Perhaps you know we're broadcasting from our new home. The CPR newsroom moved just a few blocks away from the state capitol. And to celebrate our new digs, we dug into the history of our block. There was a French school here, a series of hotels that at one point featured a Playboy club. Well, the story prompted some of you to share the history of your homes. Here's Jeremy Hohola. You might recognize his name. He's a reporter at Nine News. I'm actually sitting in my living room right now, going through the online records of the Denver Public Library, and within a few clicks, I was able to find telephone directories from the 1920s. That's when my house was built. And I can see the names of people who lived in my house in the 1920s. This is really cool. The earliest guy I could find, his name was James, and I could see James was some sort of phone installer here in Denver. And then the next guy I could find was a guy named Melvin, and I could see Melvin 
sold cigars. <laughs> so I'm trying to see, I wonder if Melvin left some cigars under my floorboard here or something like that. <laughs> anyway, really cool. It almost gives me a tangible sense of what uh, my neighborhood was like in the 1920s. And I'm kind of trying to picture how these people looked and what they dressed like. So thanks for sharing this. Absolutely. And uh, I hope you share those cigars if you find them. We also heard from Meredith Hutmaker, who lives in rural Larimer County. She emailed, Our house was originally built for a retired farm couple by two German brothers. Our former neighbors, now deceased, said the brothers had numerous arguments as they built it. But it's solid. We've lived here for almost 40 years, Hutmaker writes. During all those years, all of our farmer neighbors all related to one another, have died. Our road, once dirt, is now paved, and we have a subdivision up the road. We're very fortunate to live here. Our house is small, but you can't beat our view. And finally, this from Elaine Granada of Denver. I, too, have been researching the history of my 95-year-old house, and we need to acknowledge who the first and original owners of our land were, the Arapaho Indians. We welcome your feedback and your story ideas in loud and clear. Keep your comments coming. Find all the ways to get in touch at CPR.org slash connect. The new year will likely bring new service cuts for RTD. A rough proposal is out, and CPR's Nathaniel Miner shares what we know so far. Every morning, Solomon Joseph gets on RTD's 16 limited bus with his kids in downtown Denver. It runs west to Lakewood, where he drops them off at school. But Joseph may have to change his habit next year. The 16 limited is one of six routes that RTD could cut entirely. RTD? You're going to make a big mistake if you cut this route because there are more people than just myself that ride it on a regular daily basis. RTD says the 16 Limited carried more than 600,000 riders last year. For Solomon Joseph, there are other options, like a local bus that travels the same route. But Joseph says that'll add hours to his commute every week. Many of the other routes RTD has proposed cutting are less popular, lines out in the sprawling suburbs where there are fewer people to use transit. Nineteen other routes could see less service, and some would be shortened. RTD's leadership says the cuts are necessary because it's short about 140 bus and light rail operators. RTD COO Michael Ford says drivers have been working forced overtime for years. We're looking to try to do this, to try to right-size things, to bring some stabilization, uh, to give our drivers some relief, and also be more reliable to our customers so we can live up to our creed of reliable and safe service. The commuter rail system, including the A-Line to DIA, won't be affected. But light rail lines on the south and east sides of the metro would see cuts. Special buses for Broncos and Rockies games are on the chopping block, too. RTD's paratransit service, called Accessoride, may accept fewer riders in the future. And that's troubling to Jamie Lewis, a transit advisor with the Colorado Cross Disability Coalition. I can see the scenario where if somebody... uh obtains a disability that their neighbor is going to have access to Accessoride and they won't. That does propose an issue with our community. If the board adopts this plan, the cuts would go into effect in May. Some service could eventually be resurrected if RTD is successful in hiring more drivers. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News.
Maybe you heard from us that the Nutcracker costumes at Colorado Ballet are literally falling apart. New ones are coming next year, as we reported. Well, through Colorado Wonders, Lindsay Berry of Denver, mother of an aspiring five-year-old dancer, asks, where will the new costumes be made? We gave Lindsay a jingle, and you get to eavesdrop in on the call. This is Lindsay. Hi, Lindsay. This is Stephanie Wolf calling from Colorado Public Radio. Hi, Stephanie. I am calling to talk to you about your Colorado Wonders question. First, why were you curious about this topic? So my daughter went to the Nutcracker for the first time this last year. We have tickets to go again this year, and we've seen a couple ballets. So when I heard your story about the costumes, that obviously sparked some interest because that was one of my daughter's favorite things of the ballet. Yeah, the first question you had was where the new Nutcracker costumes will be made. Yes, it sounds like they have the designer hired. But then once they have those designs, where do those go and who makes them and who's in charge of overseeing that process? And is it in-house? Is it out of the country? Yeah, so those are great questions. And I did talk to Gil Boggs, the artistic director, and he actually said that they're going to contract four to five different costume shops to actually build them once they have the sketches and the designs from Holly Hines, who is the designer of the costumes. And they're all going to be shops in the U.S. Some of them might even be based in Denver. Yeah. And he actually said that keeping them in the U.S. will potentially make it a little more expensive. But he said that if they're produced in the U.S., then he knows that the quality is going to be good. And also, if they're being built in the States, he'll then have the opportunity to actually go to the shops occasionally, whether they're in Denver or in another state, and follow the process and make sure that they're getting what they want. That makes sense. Wow, that's amazing. I can't believe that they can still outsource that kind of thing in the States because it seems like one of those things that would be so easy to outsource and probably very cost-effective. But I love to think that there's little costume shops all over the country still making these bespoke, amazing, ornate costumes. And that's another thing, too, is like these shops are going to make a bid to get this job, and then they'll decide from there. Oh, that's funny. So that's like yeah. the construction process. Huh. Yeah. Very cool. Well, I certainly expected there would be some shops in New York based on Broadway, and I didn't realize there would be any in Colorado. Yeah, there are one or two shops in Denver that are going to be included in the bid process. Holly had mentioned that to create this many costumes, so nearly 300 costumes, that a year is a pretty quick turnaround for that type of volume. She did sort of joke about that come October, she might be hyperventilating, but that it always comes (laughs) together in the end. (laughs) Well, full disclosure, I majored in theater and design, and I studied costume design. So that's also why the question was particularly interesting to me. Well, Lindsay, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you, Stephanie. CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf speaking with Lindsay Berry of Denver. What do you wonder about? Ask at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders.
Hi, I'm Stuart Vanderwilt, president of Colorado Public Radio. Everything we are today is a result of community support. You've helped create one of the largest public service institutions in our state, locally owned and committed to producing news that's important to Colorado. This is why your end of year gift is so important. When you donate today, you'll fuel ambitious plans to grow this vital service in 2020 and beyond. It's easy to do at CPR.org, and thank you. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. New threats mean the National Guard has had to evolve. Now it's going through another realignment towards space and cybersecurity. Here's CPR Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce. Before we talk about this next big evolution in the National Guard, let's talk about the last one. 9-11. Not terribly surprising. That's historian Ann Armstrong. Director of the National Guard Memorial Museum, Library, and Archive. And she says in the decades before September 11th, when people pictured the National Guard, they pictured job duties like... Stuffing sandbags for a river flood in the local community. Serving in the American homeland. 9-11 happens and recruitments go way up. People in a sense of patriotism and local community protection join the National Guard right away. But the Guard wasn't looking for more boots on the ground at home. And next thing they know, they're on a C-5 on their way over to Afghanistan. I don't think that that was in their plan when they joined the Guard right after 9-11, because that hadn't historically been the case. In reality, though, this was just the culmination of something the National Guard had been moving toward ever so slowly for a century beforehand. The total force policy. The total force policy. An idea the Department of Defense had long wanted, where National Guard soldiers would be trained and used in a way to be essentially interchangeable with any other battle-ready soldier. 9-11 was the catalyst for fully enacting the total force policy, and over the last 18 years of the war on terrorism, it's really come to fruition. The National Guard has become more like the active duty than ever in the history of the National Guard. But times are changing again. This past summer, the annual National Guard Association of the U.S. Conference was held in Denver. On Wisconsin! Guard members came in from the states and territories. The National Guard Association of Mississippi. Over the several-day conference, they heard from top military officials on a recurring theme, that the Guard has a new priority, along with fighting terrorism, competition with other world powers like Russia and China is taking center stage. Here's Air Force Vice Chief of Staff General Stephen Wilson telling the crowd about the modern threat from China. Last year they graduated eight times the number of STEM graduates that we did. Eight times the people earning science and technology degrees. And we have to stop thinking like we're Goliath and start thinking now like we're David. The military is looking for a lot more people with skill sets in tech, and for the Guard in particular looking to the private sector. I commute to Los Angeles and usually fly three to four Delta Airlines trips a month. James Riemann lives in Denver and flies big commercial jets for his day job. And then in between, I'll serve for the Air National Guard, and I usually average between four to ten days a month. He's a lieutenant colonel commanding the Colorado Guard's 138th Space Control Squadron. About half of the entire National Guard space forces are based in Colorado. 
Riemann was brought in to instill some of the camaraderie and culture he learned as a former fighter pilot in his new soldiers whose jobs in and out of the military usually involved sitting at computers. To kind of help these space warfighters, as we call them, realize they're not a support function anymore. They're at the leading edge. They're warfighters. They're relevant. Even more relevant because of their non-military day jobs. Riemann reports to Colonel Micah Fessler, and Fessler says it used to be that the Department of Defense developed the tech that inspired private companies. Now, that relationship has flip-flopped. Absolutely. We've got 180. He says the military is realizing more and more it needs to leverage the know-how of private companies, especially in the space and cybersecurity realms. We can take advantage of their expertise on the outside and use that on the inside. And here, the Guard might have a leg up over regular military service. The country's top space and cybersecurity talent may not want to leave their lucrative, full-time private sector jobs. The Guard gives those high-end professionals another option for military service. Back at last summer's conference, Air Force Vice Chief Stephen Wilson told the gathered guardsmen the Pentagon knows how valuable they are. Never before in our nation's history will our nation rely on our National Guard like they do today. He went on to remind them the National Guard provides 40% of the Air Force's offensive space capability, a percentage they plan to grow significantly in the next few years. Dan Boyce, CPR News. Do you know this song? The opening notes might give it away. Put on my blue suede shoes and I boarded the plane Touchdown in the land of the Delta Blues In the middle of the pouring rain Singer-songwriter Mark Cohn found huge success in 1991 with Walking in Memphis that helped him win a Grammy and established his career as a gifted storyteller, soul man, and steward of American roots music. Then I'm walking in Memphis Just walking with my feet ten feet off a beam Cohn has worked with Bonnie Raitt, James Taylor, David Crosby, Patty Griffin. And for his latest project, he has teamed up with Grammy-winning veterans of the gospel world, the Blind Boys of Alabama. Yeah, John said the city was built for square. I walk in Jerusalem just like John. I won't be content till I get there. Yeah, walk in Jerusalem just like John. I said I want to be ready. Yeah, I want to be ready. I want to be ready. The new album, titled Work to Do, came out in August. I spoke with Cohn this summer ahead of his appearance at Chautauqua Auditorium in Boulder. We discussed his work with the Blind Boys and the event that nearly took his life in Denver 14 years ago. Mark, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. I have to say that so much of your music gives me gospel goosebumps. I just get (laughs) so moved. Do you remember the first time you heard gospel? I don't remember the very first time, but it was there from the time I was a kid. I don't even know why or how. Um, I was a Jewish kid growing up in the suburbs of Cleveland, but somehow gospel music made its way through to my my brainwaves, and it's moved me from the very beginning, and still does, obviously. Was it your parents? Was it uh, some other influence? One of my older brothers was a really great piano player, much better than me. And he had a band that used to rehearse in our basement. And they largely played Ray Charles and Dionne Warwick and things like that. But I think he also was plugged into gospel. And that's 
probably listen. I mean, Ray Charles that comes from gospel. Yeah. Basically, what Ray did was take the the feel and the vibe and the passion of gospel music and change the lyric. There also, my parents died when I was quite young, and I think for a brief moment there was someone along with my older brother who took care of me, and I think she sang a lot of gospel music. It strikes me that so much of gospel comes from pain and strife. Mm. Uh, I wonder if having lost your parents early on, perhaps you identified with gospel because it was a kind of plaintive genre of music. That's certainly possible. That's certainly possible. I think there were a lot of things about it. I mean, it's also... You know, it can be quite fiery and passionate and just unendingly soulful. Um, so I was attracted to all kinds of music from the time I was seven or eight years old. And I was already writing songs then, too. So, oh. um, yeah, yeah, I had a strange childhood, but <laughs> a, a lot to write about. So I did. What speaks to you about this collaboration with the Blind Boys? Well, obviously, it's my early love of gospel music coming completely full circle. Um one of the things I loved growing up, another huge influence for me was Paul Simon. And he had a record called There Goes Rhyme and Simon, which to this day is still one of my favorite albums of all time. Definitely a desert island disc for me. And on that record, there's a song called Tenderness and Loves Me Like a Rock, which featured the Dixie Hummingbirds, a great gospel group. And that combination of Paul's music, lyrical sensibility, his voice matched with the Dixie Hummingbirds, which were an amazing group. Uh, it was one of the greatest sounds I've ever heard. So I suppose this collaboration with the Blind Boys is my version of that, you know, mixing singer-songwriter sensibility with gospel group sound, which was already sort of in the recordings of mine. Songs like Ghost Train, Silver Thunderbird, Walking in Memphis— Baby King. These are all songs that had gospel influence built into them. Okay, let's do something fun. Why don't we first play something from that Paul Simon record, and then we'll, uh, we're going to try to morph that into uh, what you've done with the Blind Boys. Let's do a side-by-side uh, audio taste test. When I was a little boy, I was just a boy. And the devil called my name, I was just a boy. I say now, Right, that second track, your track with the Blind Boys of Alabama, Marcone, is called Work To Do. Tell us about this track. I had the Blind Boys voices in my head when I wrote that song, and I actually meant the lead vocal to be sung by Jimmy Carter, the oldest member of the group who's, I think, about to turn 88 and is a force of nature. I heard him singing that lyric, which is basically an older man's song uh, about being sort of at the end of your road, but not necessarily at the end of your purpose here. 
Uh, and Jimmy is so clearly not at the end of his purpose here. He still makes thousands of people smile every night that he comes on stage. Can I put a finer point on what you just said there? To be at the end of your sure. road, but not at the end of your purpose. Y- you mean to not have necessarily much life left, but still a lot to do in that small period of time? Exactly, exactly. That's sort of the idea behind the song, that the work we have, you know, it could be spiritual work, it could be personal work, it could be, it could be any kind of work, or just work, you know, getting out there and, and doing your job. So I was thinking about Jimmy when I wrote that song, even though I'm doing the lead vocal, I was hearing him singing those words. Around this time, when shadows are tall, when the moon's on the rise, and the writing's on the wall. I think of my friends gone without trace And I wonder why I'm still walking around this place Maybe I still have work to do Still I have work to do Mark on your debut record in 1991 it won you the coveted Best New Artist Grammy at 32 um, compared to some recent winners in that category, Chance, <laughs> the rapper, Megan Trainer, 32 may seem considerably older. Do you remember what you thought at the time of that label, New Artist? I mean, as you've told us, you were writing songs from boyhood. Yeah, that, that is sort of a strange title, isn't it? Um, even best new is strange. But listen, <laughs> at the time, I was just so thrilled to be in that rarefied air. You know, I grew up when there was no MTV yet, no VH1. I didn't go to a lot of shows when I was a kid. So the Grammys is where I saw Paul Simon and Stevie Wonder and all my heroes. Got to hear what their speaking voices were like, you know, and how they walked and what what their vibe was. So to be nominated and ultimately to win, whether it was Best New Artist or there were a couple others I was nominated for, it was all thrilling. Um, I wasn't thinking about age or anything like that. I just remember I gave Roseanne Cash a kiss on my way up, even though my wife was sitting next to me on the other side (laughs) and uh, went up and got my award. How did Roseanne feel about that? Well, I, I, she she was fine, and she still teases me about it to this day. We're good friends, and her her husband is my best friend and the producer of this record. Um, so, yeah, she thought it was pretty odd, but she understands now. <laughs> You're talking about John Leventhal here. That's right. Okay, this new album with the Blind Boys is a mix of studio collaborations and live performances uh, with new arrangements of songs from throughout your career. Has performing these with the Blind Boys like breathed new life into some of that older material for you? Totally, totally. Uh, yes, they have totally breathed new life into the material. I mean, I look across my piano at, at the five of them singing these songs with me, and I'm smiling till it hurts. I mean, I've seen pictures of myself on stage with them. I've never looked happier. And a lot of that is just because of the incredible soul and feeling they've brought to my tunes. I said, me, me, I want to go down, me, me, I want to go down, me, me, I want to go down, down my silver thunderbird. I said, me, me, won't go down, me, me, I want to, me, me, I want to our guest is the Grammy-winning singer-songwriter Mark Cohn. I spoke with Cohn in August as he toured through Colorado. 
For him, returning to this state brings up a mix of emotions. I want to talk about a near-death experience you had in Denver in August of 2005. You'd just played a sold-out show at the Denver Botanic Gardens, and you and your entourage were in a van driving downtown near the 16th Street Mall. Uh, Will you pick up the story from there? Yeah, we were coming back to the hotel, had a fantastic show. I loved the Botanic Gardens, one of my favorite places to play, just having everybody surrounding you. And I was the only one who noticed some sort of uh, instability, maybe 100 yards to the left of our van. Just something was going on. I didn't know what it was. Somebody was running away. Uh, That's what it was. I'm just remembering that. And uh, within seconds of me noticing that, this man appeared right in front of our van. driver was still driving it. Uh, But he just stood right in front of the van, sort of daring us to stop. And I was the only one who saw that First there was a man, and then there was a gun. And shots rang out. I don't remember how many. And as I yelled duck for everybody in the van, unbeknownst to me, I got the bullet landed on the left side of my forehead by my temple and rested because it was a twenty-two, and went through the windshield. You couldn't see it. There was just a hole in my head, apparently. But Man, this is so weird to talk about all these years later. So there was a hole in my head and blood started streaming down and and I'd been shot. And unbelievably, because of, like I was saying, the twenty-two caliber and the the windshield that it went through, grazing my tour manager's chin, uh, it stopped just short of my skull and just sat in this little skin that's there. And I watched them take the bullet out. It was a miracle that I survived. And obviously something, even when I talk about it today, uh, it feels like an out-of-body thing. Like, am I really telling a story about myself? Because <laughs> hmm. um, you just never you never think that these things are going to happen. But obviously they do. And that night was my uh, luckiest unlucky night. I want to just go back to something you said. Unbeknownst to me, I think, you know, most of us have not been shot. So I, it's hard for me to relate to the idea of not knowing that you've been shot. Yet uh, That's an hmm. experience, of course, that I've heard about. But... Can you just uh, say a few more words about that? I think that's largely shock, you know, and the fact that in the end, even though it was emotionally overwhelming and incredibly scary in the moment and for, you know, months after, you know, it wasn't meant to kill me. So, uh, I mean, it, it stopped just a centimeter short of killing me or blinding me. So I just wasn't aware of anything until my guitar player looked at me and said, Mark, we got to get out of this van and get you to the hospital. I thought the driver had been shot. It was was a a way to get our car. It was a carjacking. But the man was very high, and I thought he was was aiming for the driver, and that's who I thought was hit. So I actually, even with the bullet in my head, tried to grab the wheel from behind him. But, you know, it only took a, a minute or so to realize I was the one that had been shot. Although the only pain I felt was when they finally took the bullet out. You were hospitalized really for observation, but released after just eight hours. I mean, even more yeah. remarkable. And I'll say that the man who shot you uh, got 36 years for attempted murder. During your recovery, you were inspired to return to the studio for the first time in, I think, over a decade. And the result was 2007's Join the Parade. Uh, Maybe just talk a bit about the role that songwriting had on your healing process. Uh, Yeah, songwriting helped me get through 
that very fragile time and, you know, recovering from the gunshot. Um, like I said, it wasn't a physical recovery. It was all emotional. Uh, and I went to somebody who, you know, dealt with post-traumatic stress, and that was very helpful. And this whole sort of fragility was made even worse because about three weeks after I got shot, Hurricane Katrina hit. So oh there my. I was watching all of this unfold in my personally fragile state, and it really hit me hard. I mean, it would have anyway, only because of how influenced so many of my friends and I have been by New Orleans and their culture and their music. You know, but when I saw a headline going by that said, you know, on the, on the news, uh, Fats Domino, nobody knows where Fats Domino is. You know, there were sort of headlines like that for days. It's not that you'd lived in New Orleans. It's that it was a kind of spiritual city for you as a musician, I gather. Exactly. Exactly. So just the combination of my personal fragile state and this horror happening to one of the great American cities just put me in a place where I needed to write. You know, there was a lot to sing about, to talk about, to write about. And like I've always done, uh, in moments like that especially, uh, music just seems to start coming. I find myself, I find ideas coming at me faster than they normally would in sort of my normal day-to-day -day life. Live out this dream, live long upon, raise your voice and make a Last question just about the shooting. I don't want to dwell on it too long, but what should people who haven't dealt with violent crime understand about people who have? You know, I think we all, all I'll say is I, I think we all walk around with a necessary sense of safety. But the truth of the matter is none of us knows when we're going to be the victim of something horrible. It happens every day. And it's a horrible thing. I mean, surviving it was miraculous and wonderful. I feel very blessed that I've had, you know, more years than it seems like I should have. But I would say, you know, it's a horror. It's a horror. And uh, anything, you know, we can all do to sort of stop that, you know, I don't want to be proselytizing at the moment, but I, I do feel like I've sung some concerts that have to do with gun control. And I'm very often the only guy on stage who can really talk about this personally. So I, I keep all of that largely to myself. But yeah, I think it's something very important for everyone to realize. It could be your kid. It could be your father, your mother, who is the victim. And uh, how can we let this go on? You returned to Denver for a Botanic Gardens show in the summer of 2008. That was less than three years after the shooting. When you come to Colorado, like, do you still associate it with that event, or um, do we represent something more to you? I want to hope that it's the latter, Mark Cohn. It is. It is the latter. It's so great. I mean, I already felt like I had forged a wonderful relationship with my Colorado audience. But this event, and I do think, of course I think about it every time I come there. But the context now is quite lovely. Everybody was so kind and so loving and so supportive. And when I came back to play, it was like I was playing my hometown. Um, felt more like my hometown than my hometown. <laughs> so wow. um, it's really been wonderful, I have to say. I mean, I'm at a point now where, you know, I don't mention it anymore. But I think there are obviously people in the audience that know what happened. And there is a very special connection because of that. 
and uh, it's something I feel very grateful for. Do you ever get tired of performing walking in Memphis? <laughs> I really don't. I mean, it's a rare night when I feel like, oh, do I have to tell this story again? I think it's largely because I like the song, but even more to the point is that it's a song about the love of music, the transformational power of music. That's not hard for me to tap into. Of course, that's my life, is believing in the power of music. That's why I go out there, and that's why people are there. That's why I go to other people's shows. It's usually something I feel very connected to, that song. And uh, just having a different crowd every night respond to it keeps it alive as well. Plus the fact that the, the arrangement of it has changed over the years, and sometimes from week to week. So I find ways to keep it fresh for, for myself and for my band and for the audience. Walking in And now you have the reboot with the Blind Boys, which uh, we'll, yes. we'll, we'll leave on. Mark, it's really been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. Listen up. They got some catfish on the table. Oh, yeah. Catfish on the table. They got the gospel in the The new album from Mark Cohn and the Blind Boys of Alabama is Work to Do. I spoke with Cohn in August. That's Colorado Matters for today. From CPR News, I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. 